Amen. Amen. I'll tell you what, if that could happen today, if God could open up our eyes and wonder, uh, i tell you, you won't leave this time the same. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, he's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Later on in that same book, Paul writes, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. I've got to repeat that last line before I pray. He is the head over every power and authority. Jesus, we recognize who you are, that you are the head, not only of the church, but you're the head over every power and every authority. And God, somehow I pray that you enable me to preach your truth in the way that you want me to preach it. I pray, God, that everyone listening will have open hearts and open minds and open ears and open eyes that we can see you for who you really are. We need you, Jesus. Amen. Now, last week we kicked off a brand new series called Name Above All Names. A series where we are unpacking several names or titles of Jesus. And the purpose of this is so that you and I will get to know a little bit better the one that we claim to follow. And I'm convinced that at a time like this, with so much uncertainty, with, with so many troubles, uh, so many fearful minds, that what we need right now is more Jesus. We need to know him better because Jesus is the answer to everything that we go through in life. And, and last Sunday, we kicked off the conversation um, we kicked off the series with a conversation called The Word Became Flesh. And what we're doing there, we were looking at the humanity of Jesus, that though Jesus was fully God, he was also flesh and blood, that he was a man. And we found last week that Jesus being a man, um, you know, has some pretty awesome uh, side effects, some pretty awesome results, reveals some pretty cool things. Uh, Jesus the man, number one, it, it allows you to see God. It allows you to see yourself. It allows, it shows you who you can become. It, Jesus the man destroyed death and the devil. That's good news, right? I, I don't care much for death or the devil, but Jesus took care of that. And, and this is a good one. Jesus the man, because he was flesh and blood, because he endured, there's not a thing you'll ever go through. There's not a pain you'll ever suffer. There's not a worry you'll ever have that he haven't experienced. Jesus understands everything that you will ever experience. Hashtag true stuff. Hashtag life changing. And this morning, the title we're going to look at Jesus is kind of twofold, yet it, it speaks about the very same thing. We're going to look at Mighty God, Emmanuel. And both of these titles show up in the book of Isaiah that was written 700 years before Jesus put on flesh and invaded our planet. And it speaks to the divinity of Jesus. Uh, understand, when, when it comes to Jesus, he, he, he wasn't just flesh and blood, but he was also fully God. He was all the fullness of God in bodily form. And, and here's how I, I want to attack this text by uh, 
unpacking three statements. Jesus is God. That's a really huge deal. And he's with us always. Jesus is God. That's a really huge deal. And he's with us always. Okay, let's do this. Jesus is God. Question. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that Jesus is one-third of the Trinity? Do you believe that there is a God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit? If so, go ahead and raise your hands or, or, or type amen in your comments or say amen in your living rooms, right? Good, good. I see a hand there. There's a hand there. Hand in a lazy chair. Hand in that thing right there. Someone just put down their cereal bowl and raised their hand. Good, good. Right? That's awesome. I saw a dog just raise their hand. All right. Thanks for putting your dog's paw up there. That's good. And uh, I'm not surprised by your response. Uh, for most of us, that's like a no-brainer, right? I mean, we, we've known that and believed that for years. But listen, not everybody believes that Jesus is God. In fact, of the approximately 8 billion people uh, that live on this planet, right, five, about 5.5 billion do not believe that Jesus is God. Other world religions don't believe it. Cults don't believe it. Um, most college professors don't believe it. Uh, our secular society doesn't believe it. Yeah, and, and they may admit that Jesus existed. You'd be a fool not to. There's so much evidence. However, they believe that Jesus was just, he was a good guy. He, he was a nice guy. And some may even go as far to say is that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but yet they refused to call him God. And if I may be so bold, of those 5.5 billion people, they are wrong because Jesus is God. I understand, Jesus cannot be God and not God at the same time, right? And so if one religion says Jesus is God and another says Jesus is not God, guess what? I know we don't like that in our world today. Somebody's wrong, right? Somebody's wrong. And I contend that those who say Jesus is not God, that they are wrong, okay? And here's some reasons why I believe Jesus is God, all right? That I'm convinced that he's God. First, because what other people say about him. Okay, and the first person would be a guy named Isaiah. And I want to give a brief, brief background to uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Um, this is the first time in Scripture that we're going to see the term Emmanuel ever used. It's only used two other times. Once in Isaiah 8 and once in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, when the angel shows up to Joseph. Okay, Just three times. And Isaiah 7, verse 14 is the very first time. And as Isaiah 7 opens up, Judah, the southern kingdom, was about to be attacked by their enemies. And the people, rightly so, they were terrified, they were afraid, they were panicked. Uh, the horrors of war and the threat of uh, occupation were about to rain down upon them. I mean, the enemy was, was knocking at their door and soon to invade their nation, so they're afraid. I, I kind of wondered this morning, there's anything knocking at your door? That's maybe causing you to be afraid right now. And, and so, so God gives the prophet Isaiah some encouraging words. Well, they're intended to be encouraging words. Uh, to speak to the king of Judah, Ahaz. Telling him, hey, don't be afraid of the approaching army. But instead, to trust in him for deliverance. And God reminded Ahaz that, uh, that his enemies were just mere men. But Ahaz had on his side the living God, the sovereign king of the universe. You see, God wanted Ahaz to trust in him in this difficult time, to put faith in him in this time of uncertainty. He wanted him to know that 
if God is with them, if God is with his people, then no one can come against his people. And God said, hey, ask for a sign. And I'll prove it to you that I'm going to do what I'm about to say. And you know what Ahaz did? He didn't ask for a sign. He didn't ask for a sign from God. You know why? Because he already had made his mind up, right? He already made his mind up that he wasn't going to trust in God, that he was going to form an alliance with the Assyrian Empire instead, you know? And so he didn't ask for a sign. And before we get all high and mighty, you know, and start pointing our fingers at Ahaz, I think sometimes we do the same thing, don't we? Like, have there been times in your life when you are about to do something that you know is against God's word and against God's will? And at those times, the very last person you want to hear from is who? Is God or someone who would speak on God's behalf. And so he forms this coalition, a coalition, by the way, Assyria later would attack Ahaz. You know? And, and here, here's a point, you know, trusting in and looking to deliverance in places other than God Trusting in and looking to for deliverance and comfort and safety and confidence in places other than God ends up in some pretty not so good places. Get it? Get it? Got it? Good. And this brings us to that famous passage in Isaiah 7, the one we see in Matthew 1, 23, uh, the, the one we hear at Christmas, the one that's on so many Christmas cards. The Lord himself will choose the sign. God is saying, okay. You know what? You don't want a sign? Fine. However, I'm going to give you a sign. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you the ultimate sign of what you're to look to and where you're to look to for ultimate deliverance and rescue. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Then later in chapter 9 of Isaiah, uh, the prophet, he's talking about how, how awesome the messianic kingdom, the kingdom Jesus is going to bring is going to be. It's going to be incredible talking about the light that he's going to shine on places that are now in darkness. And then he says this. You probably heard this before at Christmas. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And these will be his royal titles. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah, speaking 700 years before Christ came to our planet, said that Jesus was mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us. Now call me silly, but that seems like he's calling Jesus God, right? And now these next few people I'm going to quote are people that actually are eyewitnesses to Jesus, like they saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, they touched Jesus, they had an up-close and personal view of Jesus. The first is John the Baptist. I was there and saw the Spirit come down on him like a dove from heaven, and the Spirit stayed on him. Before this, I didn't know who he was. I knew he was my cousin. You know, we used to play together as kids and go fishing together and, and build stuff together, make forts together. Yeah, I knew he was my cousin. But I didn't know he was God. I didn't know who he was. But the one who sent me to baptize with water had told me, you will see the Spirit come down and stay on someone. Then you will know that he's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen, John the Baptist says, and I tell you that, that he is the Son of God. Paul writes these words in Titus chapter 2, beginning of verse 12. 
Some good, good advice right here in the world we live in. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. While we look forward with hope to the wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Our great God and Savior. Apostle John said this in his first letter. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we are in God because we are in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas falls to his knees and says, you are my Lord and my God. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, as he starts off this letter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through righteousness... I'm going to start over. I'm too excited. Simon Peter... Not too excited, just... Anyhow, can't be, you can't be too excited about Jesus, right? Hey, if you're excited about Jesus in your living room, scream in your living room right now. Scream loud. All right. All right. I hear some of you. Good job. Uh, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. And then a Roman centurion, Matthew 27, when a centurion and those with them who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. You see, I, I know that Jesus is God. I'm convinced of it because of what other people said about him and also because of what, what Jesus said about himself. And listen, despite modern opinion and scripture revisionists, Jesus clearly said he was God. I remember years ago when I was in Bible college, waiting tables at Dizzy Main Gate at Perkins. A, a, a friend of mine there, you know, was not a believer. He, went to the, he was a philosophy major at the University of Central Florida. I remember coming to me and saying, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever claim to be God. Or anyone say he's God, it's just not there. My professor told me. And back then, you didn't have your, your phone, right? Like today, like, and this is where your Bible is. I actually had a, a Bible Bible that I took to work. And I said, really? And I showed him a bunch of passages. And he goes, that can't be right. I said, well, wait a second. You just told me that nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus is God. I just showed you 10 passages. He goes, but that just can't be right. I have to go back and talk to my professor, right? And so despite what anyone says, in the Bible clearly says that Jesus is God. Jesus claimed it. He said in John 10, 10, the Father and I are, are one. And Thursday night in the garden, on the way to the garden, now Philip says this to Jesus, show us the Father and that's enough for us. And the Jesus says, Philip, seriously, dude, are you kidding me? That's what it says in the Greek. Uh, uh, Philip, don't you even yet know who I am? Even after all the time I've been with you, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking to see him? The Father and I are one. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And then in John 8, Jesus makes this truth that, uh, that he has got so clear that the Jewish leaders begin to pick up stones and try to kill him. And John 8's an incredible chapter. I wish I had time to, to fully dive into it, but I do not. But in this chapter, Jesus tells his people, he says that I am the light of the world, and, and if you follow my light, you'll no longer have to stumble in darkness. Are you tired of stumbling? Uh, Jesus says that, that, that he gives life, that he is from above, that he forgives sins. And Jesus says in this chapter that he is the truth and that his truth will set you free. Could you use 
a little freedom right now. Like I said, awesome stuff. But not only that, in this chapter, Jesus makes four statements that remove any doubt whatsoever who he claimed to be. But before I read one of those statements, we have to rewind the tape back 1,400 years to the time of Moses. Uh, Moses is standing before a, a burning bush, and, and God is calling this 80-year-old man. Yeah, there's still hope for some of us, right, to get it together, right? He's calling this 80-year-old man, right, telling him to overcome his fear, overcome his doubts, overcome his insecurities, telling him to um, come out of hiding, to let go of his guilt and his shame and his failure, to leave the desert, return to Egypt, stand before Pharaoh, deliver God's people. In other words, God was saying, Moses, it's time for you to live the life that I created you to live. And I don't know, maybe God would say the same thing to some, of, some listening right now. It's time for you to overcome your fear, overcome your doubts, overcome your failures. It's time to let go of your guilt and your shame. It's time for you to, it's time for you to leave that place of desert wandering. It's time to return to stand and to live the life that God created you to live. And so we read this in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Moses is talking to a bush. Anybody talk to a bush out there, right? Kind of crazy. I haven't done that. But I guess if a bush is burning but not burning up, my voice comes out of it. I don't know about you. I'm going to talk to it, but I'm going to be careful, right? I'm going to keep my distance a little bit. And, and Moses is full of excuses with God, just like we are, right? We always have excuses. And Moses says to God, suppose I go to Israelites and say to them, uh, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? I don't know your name, so I can't go, right? Sorry, God. I like to go. Don't know your name. So, and God says this. Um, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And that's the proper name of God in the Old Testament. It's, it's Yahweh. In Greek, it's ego, I me. Ego, I me. And, and, and the Greek Septuagint, which most people in Jesus' day, that's the Bible they would use. Uh, the, the Old Testament was translated in Greek in 250 B.C., the first Bible, the first book ever translated into another language, by the way. And in uh, the Greek in Exodus, it says, ego, I me. Uh, it's a word we find in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer. The Lord Almighty, I am, ego, I me, is first. And I am, ego, I me, the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So Jewish people knew that ego, i.e., equal what? A claim to be God. Well, four times in John chapter 8, Jesus makes this claim. The last one is in John chapter 8, verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, and by the way, Abraham was born in 2000 B.C. A good thing to keep in mind, like in you know, ballpark numbers, Abraham is 2000 B.C., Moses 1400 B.C., David, 1000 B.C., right? That's kind of a basic calendar of, of the Bible, right? So he's saying, hey, before Abraham was born 2,000 years ago, I already existed. And that's when they began to pick up stones to try to kill him, but they were not able to do it because it was not yet his time. You see, I, I know Jesus is God because of what other people said about him, because of what he says about himself. And listen, as people face these claims about Jesus, they're left with only four possibilities. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or the truth, right? right? One of the four. And if you reject the fact that Jesus was the truth, 
whether you want to admit it or not, you're embracing one of the other three possibilities. So let's look at those three possibilities. What about the possibility that Jesus was a liar, okay, when he said he was God? Like he knew he wasn't God, but he lied about it, you know, you know so that maybe his teaching would have more clout. Now, no one really takes this one seriously because even those who deny his deity think that Jesus was a great moral teacher. But how could you be a great moral teacher if you lied about your identity, right? You know, that wouldn't make sense. How, how could you be a great moral teacher when you call other people to be honest, but yet you lie about who you are? Even beyond that, uh, Jesus would be, if he lied about his identity, he would be downright evil, Right, Because he told men to trust him for their eternal salvation. And if Jesus could not back up that claim, then he would be worse than the worst cult leaders we've had throughout human history. What about the fact that, okay, that maybe Jesus was just a lunatic, right? I mean, the psych words are full of people who think that they're God, right? Um, But as we look at Jesus' life, do we see someone who looks crazy, who looks like a lunatic? No, instead, we see someone who seems to be in control of himself. We see someone who seems to be able to handle the most stressful situation. We see someone who, who spoke more rational and more powerful and undeniable truth than anyone has ever spoken before. And so that leads us with the possibility, maybe it was just a legend, right? Just a legend. And here's how the story goes. Maybe you've heard it in a college class or online or on History Channel or, or, or Discovery Channel. You know, that Jesus was a great guy, he did some nice things, he taught some great lessons, but he never claimed to be God. But his followers somewhere in the 3rd and 4th century, sitting around a campfire eating s'mores, got carried away, and they put words in Jesus' mouth that he would be shocked to hear about, right? Problem is, the legend theory doesn't hold up because we know the New Testament was not written in the 3rd and 4th century. We know it was written 20 to 30 years after Jesus had, had risen from the dead. Uh, and what that means is that if someone made a claim that Jesus was God, there were people around to say, wait a second, he never claimed to be God, you know? Like, like right now, if I were to say, hey, you know what? John F. Kennedy, before he was assassinated in 1962, he claimed to be God, you know? Would, would that, would that, well, maybe today it would because people are crazy, right? <laughs> Conspiracy theories. But, you know, most sane people go, wait a second. And we know him, people who knew him are still alive, you know, and he never claimed to be God. So if Jesus wasn't a liar, if he wasn't a lunatic, if he wasn't a legend, then he was the truth. And I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him to be God. He goes on, that is one thing we must not say. A man was merely man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is a son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. Amen. Another reason I'm convinced that Jesus is God because of what Jesus did. I'm going to hit these pretty quick, but yet they're really important. All right. Jesus did some, some uh, mighty God, Emmanuel, ego I me, I am Yahweh things. Right. 
Number one, he accepted worship. Remember when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit led him out into the desert, right? Um, Before Jesus launched his ministry. And while there, the devil tempted him to worship him. And Jesus said, no way. It's written, man should worship the Lord his God and serve him only. Yet in Matthew chapter 14, when, when Jesus walks on water in the middle of a storm and gets into the boat, the disciples fall down and they worship Jesus, right? Truly you are the Son of God, and they worshiped him. And you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't stop them, right? Not like Paul in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, you know, were in Derby or Lystra, and, and, and when people saw their miracles, they, fall down, they fell down and worshiped Paul and Barnabas. And, and, and Paul says, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings like you. Another thing is Jesus performed miracles, right? You know, he, he controlled nature. He multiplied food. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And even in front of skeptics, right? And no one denied he did it. They just denied where the power came from. Jesus fulfilled prophecies, right? You know, there are about 100 prophecies, depending on how you count, in the Old Testament about Jesus, about his birth, about his ministry, about his teaching, about his death, right? Because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have copies of those manuscripts 100 years before they actually happened. And a guy named Peter Stone, in his book Science Speaks, he applies the science of probability to just eight prophecies coming true in one man, right? And he says the odds of eight prophecies coming true in one man, right, is one in 10 to the 17th. And, okay, how big is that number? Uh, Okay, I'll tell you how big it is. It's big. (laughs) Here's how big. The state of Texas is 261,000 square miles. Okay, Virginia's 39,000 square miles, just to give you an idea. And and if uh, 10 to the 17th silver dollars would cover the state of Texas two feet high. The entire state. And what are the odds of blindfolding one man and parachuting him down in the middle of Texas and for him to pick out that one mark coin on his first try? Would you think that's, okay, I'll go one better. What are the odds of 48 prophecies coming true in one man, right? And that, that is 1 to 10 in the 157th. How big is that number? Oh, my gosh. It's huge. It's huge. Put, let me put it this way. Um, there are less atoms in the visible universe than that. And it, and it takes about a million atoms to equal the width of a hair. Right? So suppose of all the atoms in the universe that, that you, you took one out and you spray painted it pink. Okay? And you gave somebody a spacecraft and they had as much time as they wanted. What are the odds of traveling the universe and galaxies of them picking out that one small pink atom on the very first try? Yet Jesus did. Yes, Jesus did. How do you explain this except for something supernatural, right? Jesus fulfilled these things. And Jesus rose from the dead. You know, there's many theories about, over the years, about why the tomb is empty, right? Even started with uh, the Jewish leader saying, hey, you know, Bribing the soldiers, hey, we fell asleep, and the disciples stole the body. And, and, uh, but every theory is far-fetched, right? And every theory basically means that Jesus' followers would have to um, preach a lie. Um, Charles Colson, former counselor to President Nixon and convicted in the Watergate scandal, um, said that you know, the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, excuse me, the Watergate scandal taught him and convince him that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Here's what he writes. 
there were only eight or ten of us in the inner circle around the president who really knew what was going on. All we had to do was stonewall for a couple months and the Watergate scandal would be over. We had all the power and prestige of the presidency at our fingertips. And if truth broke, there would be embarrassment, perhaps a prison sentence, but there was no grave danger. Our lives were not threatened, but we could not hold the conspiracy together for more than two weeks. We could not contain the lie. Once prosecution was possible, the natural instinct of survival was so overwhelming that the conspirators, one by one, stood in line at the prosecutor's office to escape jail. Colson concludes, I know the disciples could not perpetuate a lie like the resurrection because it was not just the reputations that were at stake, their lives were in danger. They had no clout, they had nothing to gain by the lie, and yet every one of them stood fast in the conviction that Jesus was alive. Take it from one who saw firsthand how vulnerable a cover-up is, nothing less than the witness as awesome as the resurrection of Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and he is Lord. And finally, I'm convinced Jesus is God because he changed history, right? Anybody know what year it is? 2020. Okay, that's right. I mean, all time. That's, that's pretty crazy. And listen, if God ever came to this planet, wouldn't you expect him to live the most extraordinary life ever lived? I mean, to live a life that is head and shoulders above any life ever lived by the billions of people that have walked on this planet. Yeah, you would, right? And is there such a man? There certainly is. And that man is Jesus. Philip Schaeff says this, this Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens and motions and furnished themes for more sermons, oratations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times combined. He changed history. And, and there's a, a great movie for you to watch if you're wondering about God or you just want to be reconvinced in your own heart who he is. It's called The Case for Christ. Um, it, it's the story of Lee Strobel, who is an atheist who tries to disprove the resurrection. And that's all I'm going to say about that. It's on Netflix, Case for Christ. He wrote a book about it. It's really good. Okay. Uh, the second statement, don't worry. The next statements are not nearly as long. You know, uh, Jesus died, and that's a really huge deal. And it makes all the difference in the world. Paul put it this way, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. And what Paul is saying, basically, is if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, if he's not God, then all of it's just a huge waste of time. Right? Your, your sins aren't forgiven. You're not going to heaven. And your prayers and your worship and your service are meaningless. But listen, it's not a lie because Jesus is mighty God, Emmanuel. Amen? But if I could be honest with you for a moment, uh, not that I've been dishonest up to this moment. Yeah, I've been lying the whole time. Now I'm going to get honest with you. It's, that's, a, that's a crazy statement that we all do, right? Well, let me be honest. Okay, so when were you lying before? Um, let me be straight with you. <laughs> even though Jesus is God, even though he rose from the dead, I think far too many believers are still living pitiful lives. 
Why is that? Because I think they've allowed the world to put doubts in their minds as who Jesus really is. And, and, and what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, that some believers, and maybe you're one of them, are not living as though the one they love, follow, serve, and worship, they're not living like their Jesus is the same mighty God who breathes out stars, who holds oceans in his hands, who created everything with just a word. They're not living like their Jesus is the one who calms the storms, who parts the waters, who slays the giants, and who finds nothing impossible or too hard for him to do. They're not living like the Jesus they serve is the same one who calls Isaiah and a hundred plus million angels to be shouting since the beginning of time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And it said they're living their lives as though Jesus, hey, he was a nice guy, he did some great things, has some good, um, good teachings for my life and values, but I don't really think he's really here and can really do anything significant in our world today or in my life at this moment. I mean, it's like there's no, there's no bounce in their step. There's no strut in their stride. There's no life in their hope. There's no confidence in their future. And, it, and it's, it's my prayer today, you know, that, that, that some of what I say will convince you, not in your mind and your heart, that Jesus really is God. And it's important to get the mind convinced too, right? Because... God gave us a mind to think and the reason, right, that he is God. Listen, the Jesus that you love and follow and serve and worship, that you gathered around the screen you're watching today, he's God. He's before all things, he's over all things, and he holds all things together. And because he's God, this means that everything that I'm about to say is true. <laughs> it means that Jesus has all the answers. It means that Jesus can deliver what he promised. It means that he can provide all that you need. It means, that, it means that he can keep you from falling. It means that he can conquer any problem, that he can calm any storm, that he can defeat any enemy. It means that what he said is true. It means that what he said he would do, he will do. It means that he's faithful, that he can be trusted. You see, I think it's time to put some bounce in our steps, some strut in our stride, some life in our hope, some power in our living, some confidence in our future. Our Jesus is God. His promise is true. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Jesus is God. That's a really huge deal. And he's with us always. Throughout Scripture, we see God from Genesis to Revelation reminding people, you know, speaking these five words, I am with you. We see him speaking those words to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, Joshua, Gideon, David, and others. And, and he usually spoke them at times of crisis and uncertainty. I mean, when Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau, he spoke them. When Moses was afraid to go back to Egypt, uh, when Joshua was about to enter the promised land, uh, when, he, when he called a very timid guy named Gideon to deliver his people, each time God told them, I am with you. And who can forget these words of David in this classic psalm? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, where are you walking right now? If David walked through some dark valleys, I venture to say that, you know, probably there's nowhere that you're walking that David didn't walk. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you 
are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And Jesus, shortly before his return, made this incredible promise. We're about done. Lean in. You don't want to miss the rest of this. And remember, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I am, ego I me, right? With you always. Yeah. To save us, to comfort us, to challenge us, to confront us, and to confidence us. Okay? And, and what I mean by that is to give you confidence, right? To, to enable you to live your life with an unwavering confidence because your hope is resting on the solid rock. Listen, if Jesus is God, and he is, if you surrender your life to him, everything is going to be all right. Always. Everything is going to be all right. Always. If he's God, then he's working all things out for your good and his glory. He is with you always in good times and bad times. Mountain highs and, and valleys low. Nothing can separate you from his love. And he holds your forever in his hands. Like seriously. Are you kidding me, right? You have this great, uh, uh, there's not even a word, right? For someone who breathes out stars. He's with you. He loves you. He cares about you. He'll, pro he'll protect you. He's got you. Right? You can trust him no matter what is happening. And I'll tell you what, you need to know in this crazy time we're in right now, right, this COVID-19 craziness, right? It's not bigger than God. Financial troubles aren't bigger than God. Relational issues aren't bigger than God. Health issues aren't bigger than God. Political turmoil is not bigger than God. And listen, your hope is in God, right? It's not in Washington, right? It's, it's not in Hollywood. It's not in anything other than God. And God is with you always. When you know that, right? When we know that, it changes the way that we live our lives. Like if the God who breathes out stars is with me, right? You know, if I'm, going, if I'm about to get in a fight and I have, back in the day, I had Mike Tyson and maybe George Foreman, right? Vander Holyfield with me and I'm about to take on some uh, preschoolers. <laughs> I'd be pretty confident, right? You know what? That's, that's what it means. God is, God is with you. Father God, help us, help me to know, help me to live in confidence that you're with me, that you're God. I mean, like if this is true, if this is really true and you're really God, then it's okay. I can breathe. I can relax. I can be at peace. Because I know you're with me. And I know that you're my hope. And my hope is in you and you alone. And that hope is alive. It's living. God, I pray for those listening, Lord, for those who know you and surrender to you, God, that they would just understand who's with them and who's for them, God. That I would understand it. And I would live with confidence, Lord. My life and my future is secure because Mighty God, Emmanuel, is with me always. In Jesus' name, amen.